How can pastoral caregivers walk with someone on the journey from addiction to recovery? Sonia Waters is assistant professor of pastoral theology at Princeton Theological Seminary and an Episcopal priest with more than 10 years' experience in parish ministry. In this interview, she explores the biological and theological complexities of addiction as she talks to us about her latest book, Addiction and Pastoral Care. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Sonia, thank you for joining me here today. Your recent book is entitled Addiction and Pastoral Care. What drew you to this work, and why did you write this book? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to be with you today. The, um, it, it began as a class. Uh, we didn't have a class here on addictions, and I had experienced it in parish ministry. Uh, and so I was wanting to uh, add this to the curriculum uh, for the benefit of our, of our uh, students. And when, uh, when I did, when I began researching it, I realized that there was, there was really not much written in pastoral theology about uh, addiction, not uh, since Howard Kleinbell wrote uh, his book in 1988, or sorry, 1998, uh, and, and also Gerald May's Addiction and Grace is, is very popular, but there, there wasn't very anything uh, too new in pastoral theology in particular. And so uh, I, I began to uh, struggle with uh, how to teach the class. Uh, and in my research, uh, I began to uh, really think that this was important for our clergy, uh, as well as for our seminarians, to have a perspective that could be interdisciplinary um, and could also add some, some skill uh, training uh, and knowledge for our uh, pastors. So that's what uh, interested me in, in writing the book. I think it's in the introduction to the book. You talk about an exercise you have your students go through at mm. the beginning of class. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, this was another reason that the, the book was interesting to me, actually. I, I started doing this my second year teaching it because I found uh, in, in, in my first year I was surprised by um, uh, what a disconnect there was between uh, what they thought about addiction when talking about it as a disease or as a social issue and to what they thought about it when they started beginning uh, some sort of theological reflection upon it. And so what I began to have the students do uh, is sort of write up uh, everything that you can imagine when you think of a certain kind of addict. So I, I wanted them to put, put off their Christian filter and, and actually talk honestly about uh, the the kind of social stereotypes they have about addicts, whether it's a methamphetamine addict or a porn addict or a crack cocaine addict or an alcoholic, and just get that level of stereotypes out. And, and as they begin to do that, they begin to see that there are, uh, there are just so many ways to talk about addiction. So we get on the board issues of politics. We get, we get on the board issues of race. We get ideas of moral degeneracy and on sin, uh, as well as disease, uh, genetics as well. Um, and so uh, as the board gets uh, more and more covered with different opinions and stereotypes and sort of discourses about uh, addiction, uh, we begin to realize that we're, en we're entering kind of a complex net of ideas about addiction when we come to it. Uh, and this is important because when we hear about addiction in the news or we read the, an op-ed piece or a special interest piece in addiction, they're taking some kind of discourse and spinning it to us, uh, one sort of way of seeing addiction. And so I really want the, st the students to see the whole picture and its complexity before we begin to really think theologically about it. What are some of the most common paradigms for understanding addiction? 
Yeah, so some of the common paradigms are that there's, there's the medical model, uh, the idea that addiction is a disease and a progressive disease. Uh, that's probably most common, and that one is most used to to also advocate for the decriminalization of drugs. Uh, so it's, it's an important destigmatizing uh, discourse. Next would be the self-medication model. Self-medication model is a little bit different from the medical narrative. The medical narrative has uh, turned into a, um, a very much a neurobiological reflection upon addictions, whereas the uh, self-medication model suggests that addictions... Uh, arise as uh, in an attempt to manage uh, suffering in our lives, whether that be uh, experiences of trauma, self-regulation of emotional states, dealing with stress. And so the self-medication model suggests it's not just changes in the brain, um, but we're actually using it um, to, to uh, we, we develop a relationship with our addiction and that the problem won't be solved uh, just with drugs, as sometimes the medical model suggests, uh, other drugs, such as Suboxone, but uh, instead uh, we need to figure out what the, what the core injuries are or the core issues of self-esteem uh, are in the individual uh, to help them uh, build themselves back up without uh, the addictive behavior. The other probably most popular model is frankly the sin model of addiction. We see this even in the criminalization of addiction. Um, it, it's really a moral discourse, uh, the idea that if you do something morally questionable or something illicit, that you then should be punished for it in some way. And so the, the sin model and the, and, and the model of uh, criminality sort of come together in our, in our politics and also in the way we respond to it in, in, in the history of uh, Christianity. Why is, why is our own personal definition of addiction or, or our understanding of it important? So, so what's important for pastoral care and really any kind of advocacy uh, for, for uh, the social problem of addiction is that uh, definition drives care. Uh, so in other words, uh, how we imagine a condition, what we imagine its causes, how we imagine its progress or symptoms, Will, will affect what we imagine fixes that condition or might alleviate that condition. Um, it also changes how we view the person with that condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we, we, we view that person as a sinner, uh, then we may indeed treat them as such. Uh, if we view that person as sick, uh, then, then we might decide that uh, other medication might be, be helpful for them. Um, if we view that person as a criminal, then obviously we, uh, we, we then um, jail them or treat them in, in, pun- in punitive ways. Uh, and so, uh, so uh, as we understand uh, the definition of addiction, uh, so we begin to understand its care. That becomes important for pastoral care, uh, because at least um, in my seminary experience, I was trained to be able to uh, identify addiction, uh, be able to sort of see if somebody's having a problem with alcohol or drugs. Um, uh, but then after that, there wasn't much one d- did besides refer to AA um, or refer to treatment. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping the book will suggest that, that, that addictions begin in complicated ways. Uh, they self-organize and emerge as a condition and not just a succession of decisions to get drunk or high. And that the condition is all-encompassing. So if we imagine that people progress into addictions, then we might have more compassion about how they must progress out of their addiction. That progressing out of an addiction takes time um, and therefore uh, uh, needs... Uh, uh, a little bit more wisdom uh, in, uh, on, the, on behalf of the pastoral care provider and a little bit more compassion uh, because uh, uh, people with addictions can be annoying uh, 
and uh, they can um, uh, not do what we want them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we might in those, in, in those uh, times uh, perhaps reject them uh, or decide they've had enough of our time or enough of our care. Uh, and that's why it's important to, uh, to have, a, have a, a good definition, a fulsome definition of addictions. How do you define it? How do you define addiction? And how do you use your definition to address the complexity of it? Yeah, so there's a couple of points I'm interested in in, in addressing addiction. Um, the first is to imagine the whole condition, and the second is to imagine what the spiritual implications of the condition are. So, like many, I imagine that, uh, con- that addiction is a self-organizing system. So it's an emergent condition. Um, what, what that means is that one does not uh, choose to become an addict. Um, one becomes an addict over time as different parts of our brain, uh, different parts of our social lives, our emotional coping skills, uh, the way we manage stress, the identity we form as we grow, um, all, uh, all become wrapped up into the behavior. The idea of an emergent self-organizing condition means that there's not just one cause, but several causes as we begin to respond to our lives with the same coping skill, respond to stress, respond to joy, respond to uh, childhood trauma, respond to social stressors. As we begin to respond to all parts of our lives with the addictive behavior, uh, we begin to organize our lives around the behavior. At the same time, our brain is becoming organized uh, through the, uh, 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 the chemistry of the behavior. And in these two, um, both neurobiological and existential or uh, social um, pathways, sort of combine together until our only response to most things that happen in our lives um, is the addictive behavior. It's sort of taken over our functioning um, and now runs on its own steam. So we now no longer choose to get intoxicated. We feel compelled to get intoxicated to balance out our brains. In the book, you talk about soul sickness as a way to describe addiction. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I was trying to escape the language of sin when talking about addiction. Usually when we talk about addiction, we, we use Augustinian language of misdirected desire that one moves towards the pleasures of the flesh. Uh, or we use sin language in terms of idolatry, that, uh, that we are replacing worship with God, um, and with worship with the substance. Uh, so usually there's some kind of sin language, volitional language involved in uh, addiction. And so what I wanted to imagine is that as the neurobiological disease progresses, a spiritual disease also emerges. And, and takes over the soul. The reason why this is important um, is that uh, I'm imagining that the spiritual problem of addiction is wrapped up in the actual disease of addiction, as opposed to the idea that the spiritual problem is, uh, precedes the addiction. In other words, uh, it's because you are weak. It is because um, you're morally degenerate. It is because you uh, make make, uh, sinful choices, and and this is why you became an addict. Because, you know, people can make sinful choices to get intoxicated inappropriately and not be (laughs) an addict. Mm -hmm. So so what does it mean actually to have a substance use disorder? Um, And and what are its spiritual implications? Uh, Part of its spiritual implications is that as the, the brain gets more and more involved in the addictive behaviors, In other words, our uh, neurobiology adjusts to need 
the substance um, as part of its homeostasis. Our emotional lives become more and more generated by craving, withdrawal, and intoxication. And as that becomes more and more the case, our spiritual lives get starved. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, our spiritual mm-hmm. lives get starved of their connection to reality, um, of being able to perceive rightly and, and respond to our lives. We, uh, we make ever, ever poorer uh, decisions as the, the craving and withdrawal take over. Uh, we lose empathy for others. We become disconnected for, uh, from others uh, and become self-centered in our addictions. Um, and this is really the spiritual struggle of addictions, is that as, as we become enfolded into uh, what really has a possessive kind of hold over us, um, we, be, uh, we, we begin to get starved of the good that God wants for our lives. So I'd rather think of addictions as an evil rather than as a sin. Um, as something that is parasitical upon the good God wants for our lives, as opposed to simply a succession of of sinful acts. One thing that I found interesting in your book is your use of the story of the Gerasene demoniac in the Gospel of Mark as a story that helps us understand addiction. Can you talk about that a little bit, about that chapter? Yeah, so I wanted to give a different uh, scriptural analogy for addiction. And I don't want to suggest that the, that, uh, the Gerasene demoniac was addicted or had a particular psychological condition. But I was really attracted to uh, the Gerasene demoniac because he is, he is possessed by a legion of demons. And when you imagine addiction, and we're trying to get out of the language of simple causation, mm-hmm. um, uh, gosh, I want to use and therefore I'm an addict, but instead that, instead that it might be wrapped up in neurobiology, uh, social stress, it might be wrapped up in uh, abusive uh, childhood experiences, it might be wrapped up in trauma. So if you think about all of the reasons that self-organize around the addictive behavior, uh, the Legion was very appealing as an image because, indeed, it's multiple voices uh, speaking through the Gerasene demoniac. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also really appealing because <laughs> the Gerasene demoniac is really manipulative. And, and I liked the idea that Jesus really has to struggle with this one. Mm-hmm. It's not a simple healing, right? It's, it, it's one where um, Jesus actually fails in the beginning. He had tried to um, exercise this demon, and that's why... Uh, the garrison ends up um, at his feet begging to be left alone. Mm-hmm. And this, this desire to avoid healing, uh, to protect what is killing us, is, is really characteristic of addiction. That, peop- that people might know that this is uh, ruining their lives, and yet they refuse to give it up. In, in, a, in a deeply irrational and deeply possessive manner, uh, this is their identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, this, and this has become perhaps their only friend. And so they refuse to allow it to be healed. And, and so this, this means that Jesus really has to take a little bit more time with this guy. He really has to bargain with him, uh, has to get to know the name of this demon. And that even at the end, the garrison kind of wants his demon close by. So, you know, put, uh, put the legion in the pigs and that way it'll be a little bit closer to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's this uh, real ambivalence to healing. Um, and this is very important because, you know, when we're in pastoral care with someone, and we think to ourselves, ah, yes, they, uh, they're saying they want to go to treatment. Uh, they're saying they're sorry. They feel so guilty. Let's say they then go to treatment and they come out and they relapse. And then, and then we say, ah, well, you see, they didn't really want to change. Or, ah, they don't have the strength to change. How could they do this to their families? 
And um, it is very true that they're hurting their families, but we're sort of missing the point that this, is a, this has possessive hold over them. And so they can both want to change and not want to change at exactly the same time. They can also know it's killing them, but then just go to treatment to get their loved ones off their backs because something of the great uh, irrationality of it still has hold of them. Mm-hmm. So this is very complex, and it's, it's going to take time uh, to come to uh, real healing. You have a chapter on the brain, and in that you say, in terms of our pastoral care, the most important thing to remember in all of this talk about neurons is that the brain that first chooses to take the drug is not the same brain that years later has to make the decision to stop. What does this mean? Yeah, this is really important to me uh, because we the, the neurobiological picture is very important. I, I, don't, I don't think it's enough, uh, but it's very important. And that is because we tend to talk to an addict as if their brain is the same as our brain. And so we assume that when they say things like, oh, yeah, I want to change. I'm done this time, Pastor. I'm, I'm just done. That, that they're, do- they're done like we would be done if we uh, had wanted to make a, a simple change in our lives. Um, I don't know, giving up something for Lent, I suppose, would, mm-hmm. would be appropriate during this Holy Week, right? Oh, yes, we can, we can do that for a while. Or we, simp- we think it's a simple temptation, like the temptations we have when we think, oh, maybe I'll just not go to work today. And then we say to ourselves, no, um, this is really important. I should, I should go to work and be responsible, you know, and so, we, and so we don't act on that temptation. So we think that an addict's brain is like our brain. An addict's brain is not like our brain. Um, Because of the neurobiological changes, the addict now needs the substance to feel normal. And so when they're not using, they experience craving and withdrawal. Also because of different kinds of ways that the brain interacts with our behavior, uh, they develop condition cues to the behavior. And that means when they're sitting in your office saying, oh yeah, pastor, I'm done, I I, I don't want to use anymore. And that very well may be true in that moment um, because... God willing, they don't associate their pastor with using. But as soon as they walk out onto the street, um, Mm -hmm. get a text from an old friend, uh, Mm -hmm. pass by the same liquor store they've always used, then they're triggered and they think to themselves, well, just one more time. Well, it'll be different this time. I'll be able to control it this time, right? Uh, And so mostly what I'm trying to do is really get to a pastor's compassion, uh, so they don't give up on someone. Not mm-hmm. necessarily that they don't set boundaries, right? But they don't, they don't begin to think that these are worthless people, you know, or, or, or people who cannot change. You know, the change might just take a lot longer than we think. So you've brought up already a little bit the concept of sin and its relationship to addiction. A lot of addicts have a very punitive understanding of God, which I'm sure is tied up with some of the ideas about sin and addiction. And that punitive understanding leads to shame and guilt. How do you think pastoral caregivers should address this aspect of addiction? Yeah, you know, we don't uh, we don't often talk about this as as pastors. I feel like I feel like what we do is we uh, we sort of refer them out to get treated, and, and we don't consider the deep spiritual effects of this condition. Uh, we don't consider that many people, while they they might not feel guilty in the moment of their possession. Um, at some level, uh, feel the effects upon their soul for the things that they've done. So addiction itself is not a sin. The condition, the neurobiological condition is not a sin. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that in addictions we don't do things for which we are morally culpable. 
mm-hmm. um, which 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 weigh on our souls, and that gets a little bit confusing, right? Because if you if you support the neurobiological understanding, the medical model, uh, as as a pastor, then you might say, oh, but it's not your fault, you know, um, uh, you you have a disease. Yeah. Uh, yes, that is true, and yet anything we do affects our soul. And so then the question is, can we also say, okay, so you were in the midst of this horrible condition while you did those things, but let's talk about your guilt for these things. And let's talk about how Jesus steps between your guilt and your soul um, and, and is full of grace and always willing to accept you back. Part of what what can happen, it has happened for all Christians. Some Christians kind of compartmentalize their, their, their belief in God and their, their behaviors. And so, so when they come to treatment, then can regain that hold on God and say, ah, but I believe and it's going to help me with my recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but other people feel so much guilt for what they've done that they, that they wonder if God really can save them or whether or not they're really worth saving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 this, and it's really important for us to ask those questions of people so that they broach these issues so that they're able to talk to us about them. Um, I did some work, um, uh, thanks to the graces of Chaplain Fowler um, at Care Clinic, and, and we uh, we just ran into a lot of, of people who were either religious or even not that religious, and yet still believed in, that there is a God or a being out there, often from their childhood mm-hmm. uh, in Sunday school, mm-hmm. um, that that might even be making them addicted as as punishment for their sins, as oh, as gosh. if as if the condition itself is proof that they are not worth saving, you know. And so um, so people can mean a lot of things when they say God is punishing them, you yeah, know. Uh, yeah. Obviously, it can, be a ch- it can be how they manage childhood abuse. It can be how, mm-hmm. how, they, um, how the church has treated them. But it can also be this idea like, uh, I'm doing these things. I don't understand why I'm doing these things. It must be because I'm a bad person. It must be that God hates me. Um, and we have to make meaning um, in our lives. And if mm-hmm. we can't make positive meaning, we'll make negative meaning. Mm-hmm. And then uh, so pastors have, have a lot of work to do to, to sort of sit with people in their guilt and help them come uh, to a realization of God's grace. And that does not happen in one session. Yeah. Uh, and it also doesn't happen just when we say, oh, no, no, you're fine. No, no, you're fine. I mean, obviously. So we, <laughs> yeah. we have to take some time yeah. and figure out what their spirituality is, what metaphors and scriptures might be really powerful for them mm-hmm. and what they might need uh, to heal that part of their lives over time. And wrapping up a little bit, what yeah. would you like to say to pastors who, you know, are today struggling to walk with people with addiction? Yeah, it's a really hard journey. I believe perhaps the most important thing for us to realize is that we don't have the power to change anyone. That power is God's. And so as we walk with someone with addiction, we're always going to be tempted to take that back. Mm -hmm. We're always going to be uh, tempted to be Jesus for someone. Mm -hmm. That job is already taken. Uh, And so we need to remember that. Uh, And that means that we are present. We are available. We are not all giving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we, we're, we're wise as serpents and gentle as doves or innocent yeah. as doves. We, uh, we, we know that addiction is possessive and it is manipulative and it is powerful. But we don't give up on it, on people. And we watch our own souls as far as a tendency to judge, to reject, because we feel anxiety that we're not good enough to help. You know, mm-hmm. so we can uh, we we can do that. So so we 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 watch our own souls and our own spiritual lives in terms of not um, judging or hating the one who will not take our good advice, and then we also are present as we can be, uh, without trying to take over or save people. 
Yeah. Uh, that's it's such a difficult place to be in the middle of those two things. Uh, but if we accompany someone, if we continue to talk through their relapses, what did you gain from that? Uh, what did you learn about yourself? What are you going to do next? The door is always open. We're always here for you. And, and we just continue to to model Jesus' love. Uh, that's really all that we can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, but I hope the book can also help. There's, there's a chapter on change theory that can help uh, pastors sort of figure out where somebody is at in the process of change and so better, better offer them help. Mm-hmm. And there's a chapter on motivational interviewing skills that can help pastors uh, um, uh, build up the change language in somebody's conversation um, while also honoring the ambivalence about change. And so I, I hope that can also be helpful. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds, and by Sherry Osteen. Our producer is Nee Otto Abrams. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit The Thread.